This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When it comes down to it, what are we at our core? We are North American waterfowl. Hello and welcome to another episode of the North American Waterfowler Podcast. My name is Elliot and today we are talking to Jake from Chasing Green. How are you doing today, Jake? Pretty good, man. Glad to be on again. The reason I brought Jake on here, and I don't know if you follow his channel over there on YouTube, Chasing Green. If you don't, you absolutely should. His videos are fantastic. All his content is really really worth your attention so it's chasing green over there on youtube if you do follow him you may have seen or at least saw that he was interviewing dr frank who is the president of the delta organization i was out scouting yesterday and i listened to that hour-long conversation and i was just i don't know it, it was absolutely fantastic it, it was unbelievable the thing about it that was so great, I mean, you guys, Jake, you guys hit the topics I thought you would hit, but the thing I was so impressed about it was like your follow-up questions were just fantastic. I mean, you pushed him in depth on all sorts of issues. I have heard all of basically that kind of information, but your questions were so on point that you got to the next surface on every single topic, and that's where the gold of that interview took place because you guys went to places with the conversation with these surface conversations we've all heard you pushed down underneath and got to information i know that i had never heard before so jake tell me what was your goal how did this interview unfold how did you get it um what were your thoughts on starting it how did you get in contact with them what what initiated this whole interview well you know 
every year about this time, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service releases the breeding survey or the breeding population survey every year. And I just, I always notice there's a ton of confusion and misinformation about it. And it's just a lot of misunderstanding. And I, I don't feel like that all the organizations and everybody involved in it do a good job of getting, you know, in-depth information out about it. And I know duck hunters are curious about it. I know I am. So that's what kind of prompted this thing. I wanted to get a deeper dive of what this was just to kind of uh, bring some clarity to the breeding pop and really just the waterfowl populations as a whole. And so um, I reached out to Dr. Frank. He's not only is he the president of Delta Waterfowl, but he's also the chief scientist. So he's been working there since like the 70s, I think. I mean, he's seen duck populations do everything that they can possibly do. He's done, been a part of all the studies. And I just felt he was a really good um, individual. He had a really good perspective on this, you know, the whole waterfowl survey. And so I really want to do a deep dive all the way around, though, not just with him, but with all the professionals in the field, because you just it's crazy how much divisiveness there is on this subject should we lower limits should we not is the population really good is it all a lie there's so many like conspiracy conspiracy theorists out there about it you know it's all about money and i just really want to get the the perspective from the people who are actually on the breeding grounds and actually looking at it you know I know I'm guilty of it. I'm, I'm guilty of forming these opinions about things when I really don't have the information that I should have before I open my mouth on it. You know, I've done a lot. I think we all do it to some degree. And I just kind of caught myself in that and wanted to get the actual facts. Like, let me see what these people who actually do this for a living have to say about it. And so that was kind of the main driver around it, just to, to bring this information out to the duck hunting public pretty much. Right. So after I heard this interview, I, I got to thinking I really wanted to bring this interview here for all of you that listen to my podcast. So I contacted Jake. I was like, what would you think about me airing this interview here on the North American Waterfowling Podcast? Because it's just something I think that a lot of people would greatly benefit from hearing. So Jake graciously um, allowed us to play that. And we're going to play it for you in its entirety here in a moment. Jake, have you had some time since now this was so it's been three or four days since you interviewed Dr. Frank. Have you had any time to think about your conversation with him? And do you have any follow up thoughts or um, I guess questions you'd still like to ask him about the interview? Yeah, I mean, a guy like that, you could just ask thousands of questions. You know, he's just got so much information and uh, he's so good at 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 answering, you know, he's such a wealth of knowledge. He's um, very detailed in his answers. And I like that. But yeah, just the kind of what I was saying while ago is that I would like to just get more and more of these types of interviews with him and others. And that's kind of what I was mm -hmm. reflecting on. I need to know more about uh, how our, how harvest actually affects the population. I need to know more about how the regulations are made and what's being done on the breeding grounds. And ultimately what can we do as hunters to help that? Um, you know, anything in that realm, I would like to just get more and more info, information out there on because I just think there's a huge lack of it out there. Ultimately, I would like to just see uh, the waterfowling community as a whole push for more information on these subjects. I know a lot of people are vocal right now, whether it be about 
restrictions on limits or whether it be about out-of-staters. And I just see a lot of talk about these things without much science behind it. There's been very little studies or at least not a lot of information put out on the studies that I've seen. And I just, I'm kind of hoping that we can all just make a push to get more informed on the issues uh, so that we can speak about them and voice our opinion to our state representatives um, in an informed manner instead of just what we think may be or what we've heard from somebody. And that's kind of one of the main goals of this interview and hopefully a lot more interviews to come down the road on my channel. Yeah, absolutely. I saw someone on one of the forums recently make a comment about the um, duck population and I don't remember exactly what his comment was. I wish I remember, but his comment was show that he fundamentally completely did not understand the count and, and the data. I mean, it was just so off base that he just didn't understand it at all. And so I, I'm with you that it would, uh, it would be um, really helpful to the whole community to have more conversations like you had with Dr. Frank, because there are some things that definitely that we need to push forward, things that maybe need to change. And, and it's just better if everyone's working from a point where they understand the information that is out there. Absolutely. No doubt. Well, um, do you have anything else you want to say about this interview before we get it started? No, I just, it was an honor to have him on. Uh, anytime you get the president of a, huge corporation yeah, like that organization real. it's you know it's an honor to have them on when they have that much knowledge so i hope everybody enjoys it and just if you do enjoy that kind of content be on the lookout because i hope to come out with a lot more on these type of subjects you know whether it be harvest or duck populations or how pressure is affecting duck hunting just all these things so be on the lookout and you can check me out on my youtube channel chasing green yeah, please make sure and do that. Uh, before we start the interview, I will say the, the audio may, it's not horrible audio, but it was pulled down off of YouTube, so it may not be quite as clear and crisp as usual, so allow us that. But before we do that, I do want to remind you guys, if you aren't using Onyx yet, you have got to download the Onyx app. It has fundamentally changed my waterfowling. Jake, do you remember not using Onyx in that transition? Absolutely. It was a extreme transition. Yeah, um, I remember mainly navigating before Onyx mm -hmm. and and just GPS in general. <laughs> that was a, yeah. it was amazing how we got to the places we got to before daylight, like we did. <laughs> yeah, I, there's part of me that wishes that there wasn't an Onyx because I was doing that with Google Images way before anyone else was, and I, even when I started FDH before Onyx was around. I didn't talk about what I was doing with historical Google images and, and all of that. And I, and I, I really felt like it gave me a leg up on everyone. And now if you're not using on X, you are um, t playing with one hand type on your back. I mean, you absolutely. just absolutely are. You absolutely are. So on X hunt on X maps, go check it out. The other thing I want to remind you, I just put out that, have you listened to that full length episode um, I did with Bobby? Yeah. I, I want, I can't wait for you to listen to that Jake. Uh, the newest one, the calling one. No, I have not. Well, I can't wait to get your feedback from it. Cause it was just a full hour of Bobby working with me on my calling. And it just reiterated what I already knew is that that guy knows the calling game. He, t I mean, he is so passionate about calls, about calling. He's like Jake. It's like calling ducks is one of the most, his favorite things. In fact, he's not a dog guy. 
I think because he's just so into the calling aspect of it, that that's like his game. And I know you're kind of like that too, Jake. Um, not about the dog guy part, but just like for you, so much of the enjoyment of waterfowling is tied around your duck call, you know? Yeah, for um, sure. The vast majority of it. Right. So his calls are fantastic. Ducklander calls uh, code NAW23, and you can get 10% off of his calls. Go and check that out now. So without further ado, we are going to go ahead and listen to uh, this interview with Jake and Dr. Frank, who is the president and chief biologist for Delta Waterfowl. Welcome to Chasing Green. We are live. We've got Dr. Frank. He is the president and chief scientist of Delta Waterfowl. And I'm just so thankful for you being here tonight, Dr. Frank. And uh, I don't want to waste your time. So let's just jump right into it. Every year when the breeding population survey comes out, I notice there is a ton of misinformation about it. Uh, just a ton of confusion about it, really. Could you start right. off by just giving a brief explanation of what the survey is and how it's done? All right. Um, basically, to manage ducks, we've always known we're going to need population estimates. You can't really manage any wildlife without knowing how many you got. And so uh, in the late 40s and 50s, folks said, look, we know most of our ducks come out of the prairie pothole region and, and farther north in Canada, Arctic deltas. And so we ought to go and survey those regions. So um, and, and we had some really great pilot biologists early on, a guy named Frederick Lincoln, for instance, in the 30s, knew that, you know, airplanes were the way to go. So, so we came up to Canada and, and, and figured out that, yeah, we can count ducks out of a light airplane. And we set up the surveys, and, and since the 50s, we've run these surveys every year. Largest wildlife survey in the world that's, that's run annually. And it's the exact same set of transect lines. And generally what we do is we fly an airplane and, and these guys weren't stupid. This is before the days of GPS. So, so they said, hey, let's take dirt roads and let's fly 150 miles down this dirt road and we'll count ducks on both sides. The pilot will count ducks and then you've got an observer on the other side of the plane and the observer counts both ducks and ponds. Pilot has to fly, so he better stick with just trying to count ducks. And they don't count them very far out. They count them in a narrow strip. And, uh, and we've been doing this survey, and we time it generally for mallards. So we're trying to time it when mallards are right initiating nests. And that means it's a little bit early for things that are later nesters like gadwall. So uh, we could be missing gadwall that haven't arrived yet, that they're still down in Louisiana or, or on their way north. But fly these survey lines. Now, it's no surprise when you're flying an airplane, you're going to miss some ducks and you're going to miss ducks more commonly in a really wet year when the pond is, is, Oh geez, let's see if I can do this. <laughs> when the pond is here, but the water's out here. And so you got all this flooded vegetation. Well, a green wing teal and flooded vegetation, guess what? You're not likely to see it from an airplane. Uh, and yet if it's a dry year and this is the outline of the pond, but the water is only in the middle, you got ducks sitting on mud and so you can count them all. So we know we have to do a ground count to correct the air counts. So we take what's called a segment, a little 10 mile strip and guys go and they, and they drive a truck, take ATVs, they walk, but they count all the ducks and then you get a correction factor. So correction factors can range from, like 1.5 for canvasbacks. You see most canvasbacks. They're big, they're bright, they're white. Yeah. Uh, 
and it could go to 25 for green wing teal. And so we count ducks um, and, and basically that's the survey. And the survey lines, you can see them in the book. If we have real high densities of ducks, we put lots of survey lines. When you go to the boreal forest and you got you know five ducks per square mile, well, you spread the survey lines out. And then you have to extrapolate over a large area. But, but that's the count. It's a, it's a heck of an effort. It takes a ton of people. It takes Fish and Wildlife Service pilot biologists. Um, and of course, during COVID, we had a two-year shutdown, which was really unfortunate. But so we, sure. we've only missed two years of data since since the 50s. So that's that, the certain. One of the biggest common or one of the most common misconceptions I see about it is that it doesn't include the hatch, correct? Oh, no. Nope. It's that's, in my view, the biggest problem with it. It is a snapshot of one period in usually, you know, here in the Dakotas, it's early May. And and things can change. Like this year, we we all sat around this year in Bismarck and we missed the record for the total amount of snowfall by half inch. And of course, all of us are grumpy because we shoveled snow all winter long and then we didn't break the record. But we all thought, man, it's going to be epic amounts of water. Well, we kind of forgot that last summer, we got a spring snowstorm in May, and then it dried out, and we never got another bit of rain. Crops did lousy. So the soil was so dry that all that snow melted and soaked right in. It filled up the ponds initially, but it was so dry we had no runoff. So, you know, we didn't have that much water in the spring, even though we thought we were going to have, you know, a ton of water because of all the snow. But then in late May, we got rains. And so I think the snapshot missed it a little bit um, in terms of it hit after the snow melt, but before the rain. So in North Dakota, a lot of our ponds went up due to some great spring rains in late May. So, so it's and a snapshot. Yeah, that's kind of what I've heard yeah. from the people that I've, you know, yep. that are in the know on it, that we really had a better hatch and better conditions after the survey. It should be a better fall flight than what the numbers were showing. Oh, I, I really think so. That that even though the numbers are down a little bit this year, at least in the Dakotas where we had good water, we kept water. In fact, Chris Nikolai just came in. He's our uh, biologist uh, uh, and, you know, got a ton of experience. He came in and says, my God, I was out scouting for doves. There's water everywhere. There's temporary water. Like, that doesn't happen in August in most years. So we've had yeah. good rains. And uh, and the other cool thing that happened, okay, we, we when I say we, I'm generally talking about the duck community. And, and what I mean in this case was the Fish and Wildlife Service used to fly a brood survey. Well, the problem was in an airplane, uh, you can't tell. <laughs> I mean, you're flying at 120 miles an hour. Uh, a gadwall with ducklings and a mallard with ducklings, you know, who knows? It's a brown yeah. duck with ducklings. So we gave up on it because we couldn't speciate it. We didn't have enough time to run ground crews. Uh, but here's something cool. North Dakota is the only place in the prairie pothole region, the duck producing area, where we run a, a brood survey. And it's it's a truck run survey. It's much like the, the North Dakota pair count, which generally parallels the, the big May survey. But this year, the brood count was off the charts. Mike Szymanski just released it, and really good brood production here in the Dakotas. Unfortunately, that's the only place 
in all of the prairies, no place in Prairie Canada, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, or Alberta do we do any systematic survey. Yeah, it's so it kind of sounds like in there can be some massive holes in the survey oh, yeah. process. <laughs> like oh, yeah. it's yeah. really which you know that's understandable. Like you said, it's yeah. one of the largest undertakings. It's hard to get something of that size. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So, um, but with that said, I'm I'm of the opinion that let's go by the science. You know, I. I've not been one hollering for lower limits, but being a part of the duck community, that that talk has definitely gotten louder over the past few years. And right. just yeah. in your opinion and in the circles you're running in, how prevalent is that with those who are making the decisions? Is it being talked about? Are we looking um, at restrictions if we get another bad year? You know, we could. Um, here's the interesting thing. We've, we've, pondered this question since the 50s at least you know what is the impact of harvest on ducks and uh and and for decades and decades it was real obvious you shoot ducks they're dead they can't reproduce but every deer hunter knows that that deer reproduction and the health of your herd if you get too many it's not a good thing everybody that has local wildlife knows that well somehow we think that can't apply to ducks because they migrate or something like that and and we finally started looking at it in, in 1975, a brilliant guy named uh, two guys, Burnham and Anderson worked on, on this stuff and said, wait, 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 we're doing this all wrong. And in fact, for ducks, harvest really isn't affecting the population size very much. And that was revolutionary. That was right when I started working at Delta Waterfowl as an assistant. And I was like, wow, that's remarkable. And since then we've done, you know, a ton of work and the vast majority of the work says for ducks, it's all about duck populations are driven by the three months on the breeding grounds and not by winter survival and certainly not by hunting because we hunt at such restrictive levels. And by the way, the Europeans have always laughed at us and said, we shoot 40% of our ducks every year and our ducks aren't crashing and you guys are fiddling around worrying about shooting between 6% and 15%. And they've just always laughed at us. So um, honestly, the evidence says duck harvest doesn't impact duck populations. So for somebody who who's never looked at the research or who yeah. have not looked at the studies, how do the studies say that? What evidence says that our harvests don't affect reproduction? All right, there. <laughs> Because <laughs> I know there's people asking that. Yeah. The, the kind of the most straightforward way is to basically plot, and, and we get this from largely from banding ducks. We can get annual survival rates, okay? And then we plot that versus harvest rates, kill rates, right? And, and we have to have a reasonable range of kill rates, but that was some of the original work. And basically, what you find is you can kill mallards, you know, from the rate of 5% out to 20% and see absolutely no change. In a year with 20% kill rates, we don't see any change in the annual survival rate. That's the simplest sort of most straightforward way. Now, people have gotten frustrated with that and, uh, and done far more complex stuff. And frankly, the math is so complex um, that's one of our problems in waterfowl management. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, in 1995, we did this strange thing in, in setting harvest regulations. And we used to argue this thing. We professionals would argue bitterly at flyway meetings. Uh, in the Mississippi flyway, you're part of it, we had to have northern regs and southern regs committees. And, and the northern guys were always concerned about shooting too many ducks because it's their breeding ducks. And the southern guys were always wanting to shoot more. And... Uh, and then they'd come together and have a terrible day meeting and, and the Fish and Wildlife Service was trying to mediate and it was a mess. So we yeah. tried a new system where we said, we're going to take, it's called AHM, Adaptive Harvest Management. And, uh, and what it was is we're going to use a bunch of different mathematical models that simulate duck population biology. And we're going to take the extremes. We're going to say hunting, every duck you shoot means one less than the breeding population, completely additive mortality. And the other one is something we call compensatory that you shoot a duck in the fall, right? And it's a hen mallard. She can't lay eggs, right? She's dead as hell. But it may be that by reducing the population, some magic happens, there's density dependence and, and total annual survival doesn't change because all the rest of the ducks do somehow better, okay? That's compensatory. So we built these alternative models. Now, this is where it gets weird because those models uh, will actually say we should regulate the duck harvest. And so uh, the the reigning models, they were in existence last year. And when I saw the duck numbers, I sort of freaked out because the reigning models only used to use Canadian ponds just because we started counting ponds in the U.S. a little later. So they use Canadian ponds and total mallard numbers. And, well, Canada's been in the doldrums. It's been dry as heck in Saskatchewan and Alberta. We have half the ponds right now than we had in the peak. You know, when we had ducks everywhere in 2013, we had a lot of water on the landscape. We now have way less water. So no surprise, Canadian ponds are half of what they were. And and based on last year's models, which, which basically look at pond numbers and duck numbers, we would be in a restrictive regulation next year. But fortunately, the models were just changed and we included U.S. ponds, and the U.S. in in recent years has just been consistently much wetter than than Saskatchewan and Alberta, and so fortunately that means next year we're still squarely in a liberal six and sixty package. And I so understand based, a lot of guys based off 
this year's survey, you already yep. know that it'll be liberal next year. Yes. Right. Okay. Right. And so if next year is a, a more of a downtrend year, they'll run it through the models again. And then every year we do the same thing. Now we used to set regulations based on the current year's data. So we would set this fall's regulations based on this May count. It just got to be so difficult to run the surveys, accumulate the data. And, you know, most federal processes, you're supposed to give the public 90 days to comment. Well, we'd yeah. always shorten that to 30 days. And even then, we never made it. We were telling people what the duck season would be like six days before the duck season opened in Alaska. Yeah. And, and so they just said, this is crazy. And partly, that's no big deal because, remember, we've had – 40, 50 years of science showing harvest really doesn't affect ducks. So we don't have to freak out every year and try and set sure. regulations. So, or at least harvest in the way that we harvest them. Obviously, right. yes. harvest could affect them if, you know, it's market days or something like that. Oh, but yeah. Six duck per if, person, it's, right. it's not if we enough. Started to, if we started to allow, you know, 120 day seasons and, and eight bird, 10 bird limits, probably we could reduce some ducks but yeah the, the rate we hunt ducks are pretty adaptable and and so find the places that are safe as you yeah, probably know <laughs> yes very much so so let me just kind of recap what you're saying you're saying one reason why we've been in a liberal framework for so long is not only have we had great duck populations especially like through 2015 and everything but also more recent research has said harvests really don't make as big of a difference as we thought. So we've leaned towards more liberal than we would have, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Gotcha. Like this year's mallard numbers are actually pretty close to what they were in the early nineties. And we were just coming out of three and 30 and slowly moving into, into more liberal regulations. But, you know, I think, uh, I think we've learned an awful lot. Now I yeah. should say that AHM models, um, uh, would still, you know, constrain us when we hit a real drought and mallards really drop. And and most of us say, yeah, okay, we can live with that. I lived through three and thirty in the in the eighties. You know, I I obviously like six ducks better than three, but but yeah. we all want to conserve ducks. So. Speaking of that, how you were talking about how dry it has been, how big of a drought we've been in. How how bad is this drought? That, that we're currently in compared to the last bad one we had that set off the point system and everything. Yeah. It, uh, you know, it's, it's not that bad because the drought of the, of the late eighties was pretty much everywhere. I mean, I drove by places uh, in North Dakota that used to be huge lakes and they were farming the bottom of them. And now, you know, we've had so much water that those are, are, you know, 50 square mile lakes and they were farming the bottom of them in the eighties. Wow. So, so uh, what, what we would have to have is a series of dry years where it's dry everywhere. And, and then that would drive mallards down. Now mallards being the most abundant duck, you know, you get to be the most abundant duck cause you breed everywhere. Well, that means mallards were down quite a bit this year. Like I think they were down about 18% from last year. Well, we shouldn't be totally surprised. Saskatchewan and Alberta have been dry as heck for years, and and they have half the ponds they used to have. Yeah, the Dakotas are still 
doing okay, but but uh, but mallards are down, you know, more than other ducks. Tealer took a big jump down, but they're still above the long-term average. So teal are doing pretty well. Well, mallards are quite a bit below their long-term average. So if we got three dry years in a row over the entire prairies, ooh, I'd be worried about restrictive seasons. Yeah. So this kind of drought trend that we've been in, even though it's not as bad as we've seen in the past, how how much of a role has that played on loss of wetlands, like farmers being able to get in there and farm on yeah. where they couldn't in the past? Yeah. Um, honestly, we don't worry too much about when a wetland goes dry and it gets farmed. I have seen hundreds and hundreds of ponds uh, in a dry year. You know, a couple of years ago, the Dakotas were just like, oh, man, it was bad. We produced virtually no corn. Uh, you know, it all got written off. Um, and most seasonals and temporary ponds started dry and stayed dry and guys farmed right through them. And, and that's even when we have, uh, that's perfectly legal. Even when we, you know, you and I have been buying duck stamps for a long time, me for obviously a whole lot longer. <laughs> and, uh, and we've bought a lot of easements where, where the, the pond has to exist. The farmer cannot drain the pond. But if it's dry, he can farm right through it, and it honestly doesn't hurt it. So farming through a pond that's dry, that's not a problem. Here's the problem. When it's dry, it's easy for a farmer to go in there with a little tiny scraper and take that small wetland, and those small ones are really valuable, and drain it with a, you know, a ditch and, uh, and, and put it into a big pond. And that's what we call consolidation drainage, and that's our biggest problem right now. We, we occasionally have whole water districts that cut a huge ditch and they can drain everything. Most prairie wetlands can be drained, but the most common drainage is to take the small ones and drain them into the big one. Because if you're pulling an 85-foot, uh, you know, air seeder, you do not want to go around a, a, you know, a little 30-foot pond. But those 30-foot ponds are valuable. So that's what I worry about. And, uh, and we've is seen... It a fair amount of that in recent is it realistic that we can make a difference in that like du delta putting wetlands back or is it where this is going to be a losing battle well there are two things you in a sense you just mentioned putting wetlands back that's an uphill battle because once a guy's drained and is farming the thing uh he's not real excited about plugging up the ditch and 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 having to go around it and spending diesel fuel and losing acreage. Um, keeping them from draining, that's a whole different thing. And and frankly, we've done a darn good job of it south of the 49th. In the U.S., you know, just take the North Dakota and South Dakota. That's where most of the ducks are coming out of in the U.S. So I would drain their wetlands before we even had a chance uh, to save them. But but we've protected a third of the wetlands with easements and, and a little bit of fee title purchase, you know, WPAs that you see on the landscape if you're up here in North Dakota. But that means two thirds of the wetlands are not protected except by this thing called Swamp Buster. And what we did, and we've, we've done this since the 1930s, we say we love motherhood apple pie and family farming, right? And so we're gonna give farmers subsidies to stay in business. And it's a major subsidy we give to farmers. And so it's, it's real hard to farm here in the 
in the prairies anywhere without the government subsidy. So yeah, I was about that, to say it's hard to farm anywhere right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Commodity prices are are you know good, but diesel and, and input prices are wicked bad. So, uh, so that's how we protect our wetlands in in the Dakotas with this this swamp buster thing. If you farm, if you drain your wetlands, then you lose your crop insurance, and that's a big deal. And so. I mean, we've had hail all over the state. I was just looking at pictures from a guy who had a sunflower field. You'd never know sunflowers. It looks like uh, stalks of, of cane every two feet. It's just yeah. a riddle. You know, it's destroyed. So, I've had a lot of people asking me about the pintails. Yeah. Where are we at with those? And, and could you give a brief description of why they're facing such a, a, a you know, a, an uphill battle as well? Yeah, it'll be it'll take me a minute. But okay, remember we had uh, some some people go way back when we started the surveys. We thought we counted ten million. Nobody believes that happened. There were a couple of years where we counted ten million pintails, and everybody believes something went funky with the survey for a couple of years. All right, but we know in the old days, in the seventies, we regularly had six million pintails with this May survey, right? Yeah, and then. The drought of the 80s comes along and and it's dry everywhere for a bunch of years and pintails mallards they all reach record lows right and then it gets wet again in the early 90s and it got really wet and here's the problem uh we didn't notice that there was an ag revolution in prairie canada not so much here in the dakotas a little bit but but what happened in prairie canada and remember it was dry and the limitation to wheat production and, and, and barley is too dry to produce much. So the University of Manitoba agronomists said, hey, you guys that are trying to get your field really ready so you can plant in the spring because, you know, it's a short summer. It's a mistake. Leave the stubble on the landscape. So you cut wheat, you got stubble that stands about that high, right? Sometimes it stands up a foot, but often it's only six, eight inches. Well, here's the bad news. All of a sudden it gets wet, but there's been this ag revolution. And in the old days, pintails would return and see brown fields, right? And so they'd find the grass. Now they return to the prairies and they see this huge expanse of short grass prairie because pintails are a Western duck that used to nest in, in, in their highest density in Western Saskatchewan and the prairies of Alberta and Saskatchewan where it's dry, short grass. So they viewed that stubble as, hey, that's nesting cover. No mallard. I've never seen a mallard nest in stubble. They just said, that's terrible grass. I wouldn't nest there. I'm going to go find some tall grass. Well, pintails nest in the stuff. Um, and unfortunately, uh, they have real poor nest success in it. And guess what they do if they lose their nest? They re-nest and they go right back into the stubble. Mm -hmm. And if they're lucky enough to survive the predators... John Deere is 100% efficient as a predator. And so when the farmer ends up seeding right into the stubble, he scrambles the eggs that, that the predators didn't get. So, yeah. uh, so pintails have seen this phenomenal shift. That's my explanation. Now, there's another part to the pintail problem. It seems counterintuitive, but with that long neck, you'd think they might like deep water. Not a chance. They love shallow wetlands really ephemeral. They're the only dabbling duck that's completely non-territorial. 
because those wetlands often dry up so fast. They just come in, female, you know, uses that pond, nest neck nearby, and they don't even defend the territory. Um, so they love shallow water. Well, we just talked about pond drainage and the ponds that are getting drained the most, shallow ephemeral ponds. So, so they're facing the double whammy. I don't think we'll ever get back to 6 million pintails. We'll hover around, you know, the, this business of, of, you know, 1.75, 1.8 million to 3 million. If, if Saskatchewan and Alberta have wicked wet years, a couple of them in a row, yeah, the pintails will jump up to 3 million, but they still have this problem of nesting and stubble. And I've heard through various sources that they have a, a bad gender problem as in there's a, a bigger male to female ratio in them. Is that true? And if so, is there any chance of upping the, the Drake limit? That is true. We're seeing this terrible trend in, in a variety of species. So mallards are the same deal. Mallards are approaching a sex ratio now of three to one. And that's, that's just not good. Um, pintails are at the same rate. And so uh, now with mallards, it's going to be hard for us to differentially harvest more males than we already harvest. We already shoot a lot more males than females. Hey, I, I'm down for that. Yeah. <laughs> Give right. me more greenheads on the that, limit. That's right. I'll vote for that any day. <laughs> and so, you know, AHM regulations are, are pretty restringent. I I personally think that, that once we revise the models and get better predictive models, we could easily have a six mallard limit. I'm happy with keeping the hens at one or two, but there's no reason not to shoot six Drake mallards, you know, and, and, and down in the South, we do a much better job than up here in the North because we're shooting brown ducks half the season. It's hard to tell. Sure. Um, I think we ought to do the same thing with pintails. Now here's the, here's the downside. So far the evidence is our harvest rates are so low. It won't help, but I'm ready to try it. It let's wouldn't even a, make a difference. Let's have a four pintail limit. Keep the pins <laughs> at one. Go to town, boys, and shoot four drakes. And, yeah. and I think everybody after November 15th could tell drake pintails. Probably November 1 could tell the drakes and, and would differentially select. We know that that happens in mallards. But, but uh, that's my view. There are a lot of state biologists that are nervous about that. There's a lot, there are a lot of people that think complicated regulations turn hunters off. I don't think that's the case. You know, I think you could do a quick survey and ask hunters, hey, would you rather have four pintails and, and still have the one hand restriction or or just have it be one pintail? And Yeah, I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense because we've done it with mallards for years. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, why would it be that? much yeah. and it's easier to tell on a pintail really i mean well they're both easy to tell but they're both pretty easy to tell i think it'd be tough on gadwall for instance sure you know, there are sure. a lot of hunters that aren't good enough to you know yeah i've been doing duck biology for 50 years and when gadwall come in i can generally pick the drakes out but yeah. but sometimes it's not easy and you get bad light and, and fog you know on but, the sex ratio what's causing this change do we know uh it's pretty clear that it is declining female survival and and it's because of this problem on the prairies that that things are getting tougher for ducks up here less and less cover uh you know 
predator problems. Pintails are getting hammered on the nest, and and you know it's all females that are dying. The differential really? between males and females is ridiculous. Uh, we have the best data for mallards, but twenty three percent of hen mallards die in the parklands every spring. You know they get killed on the nests or with the ducklings. It's less wow. than one percent for males. So there's a huge differential on the breeding grounds. So. And by the What's- way. This whole additive and compensatory, we're talking ducks. Geese are a different story, and we can over-harvest geese, although geese are doing great. But but we have goose populations we need to be careful with, so for sure. sure. Yeah. Well, with pintails like they are and mallards kind of trending in that direction, what's the answer for it? Just predator control or getting more habitat back or, or a no. realistic answer that we can actually um, achieve? A realistic answer is... First, just be aware that we're going to live for a while with with reduced numbers of pintails. And, and you know, we've tried restrictive regulations for 20 years. It hasn't helped a bit. So we really need to get, you know, look at, look at pintail numbers. We're shooting one pintail when they're two and a half million. We got 700,000 canvas backs and we're shooting two per day. Come yeah. on. Come on. You know, Sometimes these AHM models make me a little crazy because they just aren't practical. You know, you know, I'm impressed that guys can do that fancy math, but if the models are wrong, <laughs> I don't, I don't really care about the fancy math. So, sure. um, I think with pintails, there there are a couple of solutions. Predator control obviously works, and and when we, uh, you know, trap predators, we get big increases in production of pintails. Having a ton of grass on the landscape helps. So in the CRP years, the Dakotas produced a lot of pintails and, and everyone was quite surprised at that. Well, we've lost half of our CRP here. And, uh, and that CRP, sorry, that's an acronym, Conservation yeah. Reserve Program Grass. When, when commodity prices were really low, the government said, hey, or, you know, we'll pay you to plant grass. That will reduce the amount of commodities. Price of wheat will go up. Well, now we have so much demand that farmers don't need it and, and the government stopped paying for it. Um, sure. So we've lost a lot of CRP. Having big grass programs in Canada. The biggest bump for pintails uh, probably happened when the Canadian government said, we're going to quit subsidizing wheat uh, transport. Canada is a different country. 80% of their grain gets exported. We export 20% of our grain and use 80% of it. So Canada lives on grain exports. And to export grain from Saskatchewan, you got to transport it over the mountains. And the federal government used to pay what's called the crow rate, crow's nest pass. And they said, nah, forget it. We're not paying that anymore. Well, all of a sudden, the balance between being a cattle rancher and having grass versus growing wheat, yeah, it shifted and a lot of a lot of lamb went back into into cattle and grass and pintails like grass cattle and ducks that's a real good mix cattle like yeah. water nobody drains wetlands cattle ducks love grass so uh so you know if we could get subsidies for ranching like we have for farming it'd be great but that doesn't seem to be on the political landscape None of the Republican dudes last night were talking about any subsidies for ranchers. No, no, they were not. <laughs> now, <mind> you, <laughs> that's a little deep in the weeds. But. Yeah, 
one person asked, have you seen species you, you're talking about such a change on the landscape or species adapting to that or will they just keep trying the same thing over and over and just fail? So far we've seen no change in pintails. Now, mind you, we, we did a bunch of studies. We at Delta did a bunch of studies and looked at, at differential use of, of really nice pieces of grass. Uh, Ducks Unlimited Canada plants, you know, quarter sections of grass here and there. And unfortunately, pintails were no more likely to use that gorgeous planted nesting cover than an adjacent quarter section of wheat stubble. Mm. Now, we haven't done those studies recently, but we ought to redo them because maybe you would think pintails would eventually, you know, the pintails that are successful are the ones that nest where there's better cover and they have higher nest success. So the, the only change that <coughs> I can say I've seen is, uh, well, we got to go back in history, but in, in the, in the late seventies, I started my graduate work. <laughs> yeah, I'm old. And, uh, and I was working in a, in the parklands near, near a town called Menendosa, some of the best breeding habitat in Prairie Canada, really high densities of wetlands. And yet the parklands have always been known because it has real stable water and a bunch of trees mixed in with ag land. It also has a lot of predators and nest success is traditionally terrible. Um, and so in my days, nest success was 5%. You know, that's just brutal. Ducks can't make it on 5% nest success. But, you know, there are mallards and teal trying. And uh, and we had a bunch of Delta students working there. And mallards were trying the same old thing, nesting in the grass, sometimes going into trees, trying different stuff. And nowadays, the majority of mallard nests that we find in that same landscape, you know, same study blocks I was on, you know, decades ago, an awful lot of the mallards have shifted to doing what canvasbacks and redheads do. They go into the cattail cover and build a nest over water and they have much higher success rates. Now, oh, wow. the success rates average around 20%, but 20% is four times better than 5%. So we've seen a lot of mallards make this transition to nesting over water. And mallards, let's face it, mallards are so successful because they're adaptable. They do all sorts of things. We put out these nesting structures, hen houses. Mallards love them. Basically, no other ducks use them. Wood ducks use them for sure. We've tried them on model ducks down south, black ducks on the east coast, and, and those ducks are conservative, never do anything different. Mallards try different things all the time. And so mallards have made a shift in my lifetime of largely nesting over water. And, and wow. it's a good shift for them. So, yeah. That's crazy. That's yeah, I've I've seen a lot on those hen houses and just yeah. the research you guys have done on them. Yeah. And it seems to be a, a good thing moving forward to try to get more of those. Oh, yeah. They're super valuable, particularly in the parklands, because you got much more permanent water and you got this terrible background nest success. And so when you put them up in the parklands, mallards jump in them and, and do really well. So, you know, we typically get 60 to 80 percent nest success in, in these hen houses. So. Sure. It's one of the I, I, ways to raise I, ducks. Yeah. I would like to briefly touch on, I had a question from earlier when we were talking about harvest rates and just, we shoot for a, you said six to 15%. What's the, the death rate from predators? 
on the total duck population each year? Do we know? Do we have an estimate on that? <laughs> you know, we don't. Okay. We, we have pretty good estimates during some parts of the year. So on the breeding grounds, we've, we've done a lot of work on, on uh, where we put transmitters on ducks and, and track them. And the vast majority of the female mortality during the breeding season is predation. And it's predation when they're sitting on the eggs. Mm -hmm. Now, they're also fairly vulnerable when they're, when they're with ducklings, but, but that predation rate appears to be quite a lot lower than, than when they're sitting on the nest. And, and it very much depends on the predator community. Uh, red fox are by far the worst predator because they're really efficient at capturing females on the nest. And skunks bumble around and, and rarely capture females, but they're probably just as hard on eggs as, as foxes are. Um, the rest of the year, it's a mystery. Sure. You know, we, we know annual survival rates are, you know, for most ducks in the range of uh, 55 to, to 60, and, and it's remarkably consistent. And yet we can't tell you, we can't find those mallards. Now, you know, we can put a bunch of transmitters on, but then we're messing around changing the actual probability that a duck survives. We've, mm. we've gone crazy in recent years. Uh, basically, technology created this cocaine for duck biologists. We got these GPS-accurate transmitters that could tell you a duck was here or three feet over there. Holy Christmas. And then the transmitter collects this data and transmits it by the cell phone, G GSM, you know. So you don't even have to leave your office. You put the transmitter yeah. on and, wow, you got this fabulous. And then you add solar recharge. We went crazy and we started putting backpacks on ducks everywhere. <laughs> it turns out it looks like the backpack has a very detrimental effect on, <laughs> on the duck. So, so you're saying, I've not heard this before, so you're saying that the backpacks – cause a higher rate of mortality on in the duck. Uh, okay. I'm going to get myself in trouble with my peers, but <laughs> hell yes. Hell yes. Oh, wow. I've, Listen, I've not heard that. On the breeding grounds, we quit putting backpacks on ducks, uh, what, 30 years ago? We know perfectly well that if you put a backpack on a mallard, it'll lay one set of eggs and then it quits. And normally they will re-nest multiple times. I put them really? on blueing teal and I... I messed up totally. So my dissertation was based on backpacks and it's all wrong. Uh, so, wow. you know, it took us a while to learn it. The crazy yep. thing is, Jake, the best way to put a transmitter on a duck is not to put it on the duck, but to put it inside the duck. Seems insane. Hire a vet, cut the duck open, put the transmitter in. You know, it, it seems brutally intrusive, but in a few days, the duck does really well. Diving yeah. ducks, every time we put a transmitter on the outside, they're dead. Put them internally, and, and you know, they live for years. It's crazy. That's that's crazy. Yeah. That, crazy. There needs to be more talk of that. I just, you know, no, no one talks about that because, like you said, everybody's doing it right now. And it's just – I never even thought that it would change their beha behavior, really, in yeah. any way, much yeah. less, you know, cause more death in them. Yeah. So. I'm pretty convinced it does. Now, remember, I'm one of the rare people that is going to say that. We actually have a study going on at Delta right now. We just put a whole bunch of transmitters of different types on, and we're looking at the differential 
survival and, and migration and, and a variety of things. So we'll have sure. a better answer soon. But from the breeding grounds, it doesn't surprise me at all. Like we nobody on the breeding grounds would put a backpack on a duck and expect it to behave right. And sure. And so well, yeah. Going back to earlier, you talked about how the Dakotas come out with the brood report that just came out recently and said that, you know, we had a great hatch. What have you heard about, you know, the prairies of Canada and just as a whole, what do we think that the hatch was? Now you're going to rely on what I call fairly anecdotal stuff. So mm. I took a trip through Saskatchewan not too long ago, about 2,000 miles, went up to some of our research sites, drove around a lot. And, and I'll be honest, I was surprised. Now, first, I drove through southern Saskatchewan, places I've hunted before, bone dry, you know. Well, <laughs> it started dry, it stayed dry, and not producing any ducks. Mm -hmm. But I did get into some areas of Saskatchewan that I was impressed with. Uh, there are a couple of sort of big, really great habitat blocks, the Dana Hills, the Allen Hills in Saskatchewan. Talk to any DU guy and he'll say, oh yeah, we got a lot of activity going on in the Dana Hills. Right. Where you tend to try and protect habitat is where it's the very best. Yeah. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised with the Dana Hills. Um, there were a lot of broods. It was, it was rather shocking. We have a, a bunch of study sites up there, 25 square miles study blocks and, and six of them. And so, you know, they're spread out over you know, a thousand square miles. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised and, and it was a weird thing. I've never seen teal broods outnumber other species so dramatically. Mm. So teal broods were like 10 to one compared to mallards and, wow. and normally teal and mallards are neck and neck, the most abundant ducks. And then you have gadwall and you have shovelers. Uh, but, but gadwall and mallard broods were scarce and teal broods were everywhere. And I think that's just a function of, it was a real low nest success. Teal do better in those situations. They stick tighter than mallards. They, they take risks. They have higher nest success. And then because of, uh, a bunch of summer rains in that spot as well. The teal renested late. So in late July, I was seeing teal broods fully grown and downy duckling. Hell, we were marking birds with transmitters, you know, hadn't even hatched. So those, those wow. teal aren't going to be on the wing by the time teal season open. You know, September, <laughs> we have openers soon. I guarantee the females are going to be flightless in molt if, if they're not taking care of ducklings. So. It was a strange year late, but that's good for production. Yeah. Hopefully those teal will make it to Louisiana. So looking at the breeding grounds as a whole this year, even with the late rains included, would you say that we were still well under water-wise than what we need? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you know. Because you, you hear different people yeah. on the Internet, oh, we yeah. had the water this year, but we still don't have the ducks. So yeah. we really didn't have that much water. We didn't have that much water. We had water. It was spotty. And, and unfortunately, the, you know, the, the prairies almost always outproduce the parklands. Parklands typically have more water. So I was talking about some parkland habitat a minute ago. But mm -hmm. The prairie habitat in, in, in southern Saskatchewan, man, it's, it's tough. It's just been dry for years. And, yeah. you know, we need, a, we need a wicked 
winner <laughs> in a lot so of ways. It's, it's really going to take getting that Alberta and Saskatchewan back to really bump it up. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, if we, if we want to have duck levels like we saw, you know, 2011, 2013, just ducks everywhere, you know, record high ducks. Sure. A lot of people thought, how can we have record high ducks? Well, water washes away a lot of sins. We'd had a lot of drainage of ponds in Prairie Canada, but when you get that much rain and snow, good things happen. Yeah, that was really surprising to me when I first started researching this a few years ago. I didn't realize that 2000, whatever that was, 14, 15, somewhere in there, it may have been 13, that was the highest, you know, mallard yeah. numbers ever recorded. Yeah. A yeah. lot of people don't think or realize that. Yeah. You know, right. they talk about the golden years, but so it really is as simple as if we get the water, we're going to get the ducks back. We've got the habitat there. We just need to get wet again. You know, there are two things that drive duck production. You got to have water. Ducks have to settle and have water. And then you have to have nest success. And, and so, you know, we focus on water because that's the only thing we measure. Nobody dreams of a predator index and looking at duck production. So sure, might be feasible in the future because, you know, we've done a bunch of work recently with drones and found out that we can really count broods pretty accurately. And, yeah. and that's a cool breakthrough for research. But whether we could make that operational over the you know, we're talking about an area bigger than Texas. You know, you're going to count all the ducks in Texas. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. So it'd be tough to do a production survey. Sure. So other than the hen houses that Delta's doing and the CRP work that's putting grass back, is there really any other programs or organizations doing anything to add to, to duck production actively? Uh, okay. Here's what Delta's take is. And, and of course, Delta focuses on protecting habitat and increasing duck production. And, and we've done 40, 50 years of work on duck production. And unfortunately, we've found a lot of techniques that really don't work very well. The two that work, lethal predator management. Uh, we know we can trap predators and really bump up duck production. And, and that's the cheapest way to make increased duck production. Now, hen houses is not, not much more expensive and of course, hen houses produces ducks that most hunters want. You know, most sure. hunters love mallards. <laughs> Let's face oh, it. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and so those are the two things we've found that are that are efficient and effective. Uh, unfortunately, we've well. First of all, let's face it: predator management is not politically correct in some circles, and so mm -hmm. you know, a lot of groups and organizations have shied away from it. Uh, what, what appears like it would work is, is spreading out nests so they're a needle in a haystack. And that means, you know, buying chunks of land here and there and planting grass and, and hoping that you really improve nest success. And here's the weird thing. We've done that experiment, good Lord, a lot of times, and it really doesn't work. Uh, when you plant a quarter section of grass, basically you've made great home for two families of red fox and a bunch of skunks. Yeah. Mm. It's kind of like doing a food plot for ducks. You plant, they're going to come. If you plant yeah. a nesting site, predators are going to come. Right. And <laughs> so much. if you plant a ton of grass, you change the scale. And and I think what happens, and, and honestly, this is not proven by science because we haven't done it, the science well enough, but I think when you plant a ton of grass, you get a, 
a shift in the predator community. And frankly, we know that coyotes are way better to have on the landscape than fox. Fox always cash eggs. Think of a fox as a gray squirrel. Every time it finds a nest, it takes every egg and moves them a little ways and hides them. Winter food, okay? And fox are also really good at capturing females on the nest. And coyotes, by and large, think ducks are not worth messing with. You know, coyotes would rather eat jackrabbits. And so, uh, you know, coyotes are our our friend. Foxes are our enemy. So big chunks of grass promote coyotes, badgers. Badgers are badass predators, but they also take care of skunks and raccoons and lower the skunk and raccoon population. And our trifecta of the worst predators, fox, coons, skunks. And yeah. so if we can change the predator community by planting vast amounts of grass, let me just warn you, a lot of that was pretty speculative. We've not done those experiments well, but but I'm sure. convinced that's the case. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've been around it a long time, so I would say <laughs> your, your opinion matters on the subject. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, is since I've started kind of studying going to Canada and hunting there, I've noticed that their recent modern rule update that they did is a lot better than what we got going on here. Is there any chance that we will ever update like the possession limits and stuff like they did? Is there any talk of that whatsoever? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I love that. I love that possession limit and the business that once it's processed, you know, it doesn't count. You're always worried about, Yikes, I got more than a possession limit in my freezer. What happened if the feds show up? Um, well, I try uh, to avoid that. But, yeah. But it yeah. is annoying. I mean, you get yeah. 18 ducks. I mean, my wife yeah. and I can eat 18 ducks in nine meals. I mean, that's not going to last you a year. That's not even a meal a month. I mean, right. Yeah. It's not enough. Have you? Is there any talk to go back and revisit these rules and uh, update it, them? It's, uh, it's pretty controversial and there's not much movement in the u.s it'd be nice but but, why is it controversial uh you know there's just this long-standing view that that harvest really makes a difference to duck populations and yet i just told you we we've had 40 years of of information that says that's not the case Um, so some people think that keeping that possession cap on it is keeping ducks from being shot yeah some people think that uh, so and so uh, there's basically a controversy in the fish and wildlife service is what you're saying uh it's not just the fish and wildlife service it's it's also state agencies um mm. i've seen you know i'm getting out on a limb here but but it seems to me like there's more and more separation of enforcement folks from biologists um in many states, biologists used to have enforcement authority, and there are relatively few states where that happens now. And and so you have these two different camps, and and it's a little unfortunate, in my opinion, that the enforcement side of many state agencies and even even some of the feds have this. Uh, and not, certainly not everyone, but they have this attitude that. You know, hunters are lawbreakers. I just haven't caught you yet, and mm. and that thing, that attitude drives me crazy. We are losing hunters. We're trying to 
we're trying to recruit hunters and save, you know, this lifestyle that hell it matters a huge amount to you and me. I'd hate yeah. to see my grandkids not have the opportunity or it's politically unacceptable. And yet, uh, you know, we often have enforcement folks that just, you know, make you feel like you're a criminal the minute they see you, you know, and, and so, and, and part of this uh, business is those sorts of regulatory changes come from the enforcement side and, and they don't want to make them for some reason. And it's unfortunate. I think if biologists were, had a greater say in those sorts of regulations, we might see the sort of positive change that we've seen in Prairie and Canada. You know, I love those sure. bag limit changes and, and, and the fact that you can have three, you know, three days of limits. So, yeah. Yeah. Canada has got it figured out. Once you yeah. freeze it there, it goes, yeah. it leaves yeah. your possession limit, which right. I just don't think there's that many people taking advantage of that. I mean, there's, it's just so much gray here in the United States too. What about, I've heard different, fed say different things like what if you turn it into sausage well is it yeah. still possession or not right. you know right. like it's like <laughs> and i've heard some people say yes and some people say no on that people that yeah. matter so you yeah. know it's it's just a lot of gray i wish we could kind of clarify that and just make it more specific about exactly what possession is. but it sounds like my dream is not going to come true on that <laughs> uh, i wouldn't hold your breath yeah okay. <laughs> we just put it that way <laughs> gotcha you you kind of touched on something there that's really been kind of a, a big deal to me and that's how fast we're losing hunters and just yeah. how bad it's gotten people don't realize it but i mean yeah. we've lost half since like the 70s yeah and one thing i see right now i hunt 95 percent bullet land i hunt probably 70 yeah. 80 days a year and there's this alarming trend right now of a lot of states including my home state of starting to include more restriction in limiting more access on non-residents yep. i mean it's just a it's a bad trend in my opinion and it's unneeded in a lot of places and that may be unpopular but what is delta's thoughts on what's going on like kansas right now is trying to restrict non-res yeah. you know that, talk that, among you guys on that or that, that's a really tough issue because uh, you know we don't want to restrict hunters uh but the flip side is you know there's there's been so many hunters that, that have left hunting and, and most of them say, well, it's an access issue. I used to be able to hunt public land and, and I could go out there and have a reasonable hunt. And now there are 27 hunters in my spot. Um, and, and, you know, the private land I used to hunt on has all been leased and I can't afford to lease. So it's a terrible issue in my opinion. Um, uh, and, and frankly, there's no right and wrong, uh, and we don't we don't have an official position. We would, you know, we love the old days when when you could go out and ask permission and, sure. and get on land without having to spend a fortune. And frankly, those days are, you know, even here in North Dakota, we're seeing lots of leasing happening. And and 15 sure. years ago, that was almost unheard of. When I moved to Louisiana. You know, I'd been hunting as a student in Kansas and you could get on land. And, and so I said, well, I'm going to go ask permission. And people looked at me like I had corns growing out of my head. Every <laughs> yeah. inch of Louisiana has been leased for decades. You know? yeah. And so, yeah, I was like you. I hunted public land. And uh, unfortunately, we're seeing public land not managed as well because of lack of funding. And so 
the number of ducks we see on public land these days is is declining. And meanwhile, sure. private guys are figuring out how to manage better and better and holding more ducks. So, and just a, to be, just to be clear clear on what I was saying, I do think states should you know have rights. I think that yeah. they should protect their guys. I just think some are going too far. It's swinging too yeah. far. Because, I mean, you know, as well as I do, I mean, there's 30,000 duck hunters in Georgia. There's 15,000 yep. in Alabama. I mean, them guys have got to travel if they want to go shoot a mallard pretty much. <laughs> and it's just, I try to view it from their lens that, yep. you know, they're, they're not from a place like Arkansas like yep. I am. And I hate to see all these East Coast guys constantly getting limited and new yep. people coming into the sport. Basically, every state's saying, we don't want you here. Yeah. Like, yeah the residents are saying that and even the state agencies and sometimes are yeah. saying that and yeah. it's just a bad time for a new guy to come in they're just constantly facing more access limitation and more restrictions yeah and i just like you guys are doing a million duck campaign and i think that's awesome but if we could do some kind of add a million acres of public campaign oh I mean, yeah that's much needed right now right. and yeah. there's basically no push from any state yeah. agency to add more public land. It's like almost this defeated mentality of we got what we got and this is it. Yeah. Yeah. You look at state agencies and, and they're hurting and you know, they're broken and they can barely manage the land, you know, in a lot of places I've looked at barely manage the land they have. And so um, it, it is tough. Is that the biggest challenge you think that they, even if they got more land, they just wouldn't be able to manage it or do anything with it. Boy, I worry about that because I've seen, you know, so many places where god they have a great dike area and, and they can't afford to pump you know their pump their diesel pump got flooded or, or burnt out and they can't afford a new pump and so you know you got great potential to manage well and have moist soil management or flooded timber and eh, no it can't can't move water or worse yet we got a pump can't afford the diesel so uh that that makes me crazy and i and i i feel for guys that you know still hunt public land because it's gotten tougher. Um, well, like I said, I hunt it 95% in a lot of different states. I mean, we may hunt six states in a year. And I'll yeah. say, I think there's way more, just giving you a public land hunter's perspective, I think there's way more talk about pressure than it actually is. Yeah. If you put in the work, you're going to have success. And I yeah. know time has a factor in that. You know, yeah. we get to hunt a lot. But yeah. I know a lot of guys who only get to go out there on Saturday that put in the work and they're successful. It's just... Yeah. Yep. I think there's still a lot of good opportunity out there is what I'm saying. And I hope that that sentiment that it's too much pressure, don't haunt public, don't affect yeah. a lot of these younger guys. Oh, yeah. No, I, I agree with you. You know, in Louisiana, I was in a lease for a couple of years and frankly didn't like hunting the exact same spot. And I started hunting public land and I loved it. And Sure. You know, my only limitation was that I could only go, <laughs> you know, occasionally. But, boy, it was fabulous hunting down on the Atchafalaya and, and, you know, I, I just loved it. So, yeah. Sure. Well, I've held you here for long, a long time, longer than you probably need to stay. But I want you to, if you don't mind, would you end by kind of just giving what your thoughts are on the future of the duck population and then just the future on duck hunting in general? What do you, what do yeah. you see coming for the next five to 10 years? Well, you know, it's really hard to predict five to 10 years just because, so much, you know, ducks are driven by what happens on, on the prairies. And, uh, and it just depends on whether we get water and then whether good things happen. Uh, you know, we had a tough winter last year and the predators took a beating on our trap sites that have, we've consistently trapped. 
we got lots fewer. So for this fall, uh, uh, even though the duck numbers are down, I think it's going to be a better year than last year, just because I think production was was much better. And certainly in the Dakotas and and several other places look pretty good. So, and and frankly, we live on on duck production. It's not the returning adults that that make a huge difference, particularly down south. So, so I think it's going to be uh, you know better than better than last year. It's not going to be an epic year. You know, we just have too few ponds and, 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 you know, when mallard numbers are 23% below the long-term average, you just can't have them coming out of the woodwork all of a sudden. But uh, I think it's going to be pretty good. I sure hope we hit another few years where we have crazy water everywhere. Uh, And particularly the prairies of Saskatchewan, you know, that Saskatchewan, Let's face it, it's got more wetlands than any other jurisdiction. You know, Manitoba's got 20% of Canada wetlands. Saskatchewan's got 60. Alberta's got another 20% of the Canadian wetlands. So we need we need a lot of water in, in southern Alberta and Saskatchewan. Sure. Uh, I'd love to see it. I can't look into a crystal ball and say whether it's going to be wet next year. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, well, I guess I, what I really meant is what do you think – where do you see the future as, as duck hunting as a sport? Where do you yeah. think it's going to be? Do you think, I mean, we're sitting as good as we can hope, or do you do you not feel good about the trend you know, that we're on? I, I worry about the loss of hunters, um, and and we're losing hunters that, you know, the, the weekend guys that can only go two weekends, they're bailing out when, when it's tough for them to find a spot or or the ducks just aren't there. I really worry about that because, you know, I'm not, and I hear a lot of folks worry about it from the funding part. Personally, that's not my worry. My worry is about the future of the sport. And, and if we get down to a couple hundred thousand, man, are we easy to vote out of existence? And sure. So that, that's my real scare. I want to see this enterprise continue at, you know, for 150 years and, 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 there's plenty of potential. I mean, we've got a lot of protected habitat. We need to protect more in Canada. That's for sure. But, but, but that's what worries me a lot is the loss of hunters. I think ducks are pretty resilient and you know, when we get a bunch of wet years, they're going to come back. I really like Delta's notion that we've got a lot of great habitat that's really not producing up to potential. And so this million duck campaign, people have often said, well, you can't, you can't trap the whole prairies. Well, we're not talking about it. We're talking about trapping one and a half percent of the prairie pothole region to produce a million ducks. So you go to the best of the best and trap and you really produce a lot of ducks. So we've, we've got the ability to produce ducks and, and I think the ducks are going to be okay. I'm worried about the hunters in the long term. So, sure. yeah. Well, I can tell you, I sure appreciate you taking the time just to shed some light on all these issues. I know there's every year when the duck populations come out, there's so much talk about it. So I hope yeah. that this is kind of helps people get a better understanding of it. And yeah, it's well, just, I, let's I've face it. A lot. I'm 69. I have no intention of quitting. You know, I got this great job working on ducks, like, and I love talking ducks. So <laughs> it's been a great hour for me as well. Well, I know I appreciate everything you're doing for the duck population and just duck hunting as a sport as a whole. So I sure appreciate you having you having you here. And 
thanks for everybody who watched. Yep. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Jake. <laughs>